Let's pray. Almighty and gracious God, uh, Lord, we give you thanks for, for bringing us into this place, Lord. And God, I would ask that uh, you fill us with your word, with your spirit, that with every interaction we have, with anyone that we have it with, that we would follow Jesus, we would let the gospel lead. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people agreed and said together, amen. Has there ever been a time in your life when you received grace and you least expected it? I've been thinking about this question a lot over the past week, particularly as I was thinking about Luke's gospel and the story we hear this morning. And it's actually what led me to come up with my sermon title, which is Let the Gospel Lead. And uh, those words are pretty familiar to me, not only, of course, as I was thinking about them, but actually going back to my time in seminary. Uh, the pro- former president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Dale Meyer, he said those words a lot while I was there. Let the gospel lead. It was kind of one of his mantras, you might say. And uh, another of one of his mantras was, it's a great time to be in the ministry. And of course, that's what you would say to, pastor, to students who are studying to become pastors, regardless of what's actually going on in the world, right? So uh, he had a lot of mantras, but those were two of them. And let the gospel lead is something that uh, I didn't actually realize or I didn't think about until I became a pastor. And then it became more and more clear, not only how I see that now, but the times that that's happened in my life when others around me let the gospel lead. And one of those moments was when I was a junior in high school. Uh, I didn't have a car at the time, and so if I needed to get around, either my parents drove me or I was able to drive my mom's car. And so uh, it was a cold night in February, and I remember it specifically because during the winter was when uh, I worked as a, a coach at a soccer clinic, and so I had to get to work one night. And I was a little bit behind, and so I'm rushing to get there, and I had left my water at home, and I really wanted a Gatorade, and I knew there was a CVS right by school. So I figured, okay, I'll stop at the CVS, grab the Gatorade, go to work. So as I'm pulling into the CVS parking lot, I cut my turn a little bit too tight to the right. And as I'm turning in, all I hear is... Needless to say, I quickly parked the car and jumped out and went around to the passenger side and I kicked the tires, you know, trying to make sure that that they still have air and they did. And then the next thing I did was get my flashlight out of my phone so I could see what else had happened. Now, my mom kind of drove a a mid-sized SUV and it had a step, you know, to get into the car. And generally speaking, the steps on the side of vehicles are flat. Up until five minutes before, my mom's step had been flat. Well, as I ran my hand along it, when I got to the back of the front passenger tire where the step ends, it started to feel like the Rocky Mountains. So in a complete panic, I decided to start pushing on it with my hand as if somehow that was going to fix this step. And when that didn't work, I quickly pivoted to the next thing. So imagine you are a patron coming out of CVS, and when you exit, the first thing you see is a kid on the side of the car like this trying to seemingly shake the car. Well, of course, what people didn't know was the tears I'm holding back and the fear that I had growing inside of me. Nonetheless, jumping on the step didn't help either, and so I went, grabbed my Gatorade, went to work, and eventually got home that night. And when I get home, uh, of course, I'm a little somber, and so I get inside, and my mom can tell, and she goes, you know, how was work? What happened? And I was like, oh, well, uh, I got to tell you something happened to the car. She was like, okay, what? And I said, tonight, while I was at work, Someone hit the car and messed it up pretty bad. 
And I know it's funny now, and I see some parents shaking their heads like, oh, yeah, classic. And, and i got to be honest with you, I'm still embarrassed. Not only, of course, what I did, but even more so that I lied to my mom about it. But nonetheless, she was like, uh, okay, it's late. We'll, we'll figure it out later. Now, my dad had been out at a meeting. Normally, I probably would have stayed up, waited for my dad to get home. That night, you might imagine that I went upstairs to bed very quickly. And so uh, I'm laying in bed, and of course, I can't sleep knowing what happened, and eventually my dad's going to find out. And so I'm lying in bed awake, and I hear my dad come in. And of course, they start talking, and I can hear my mom telling him what happened to the car. And within two minutes of going out to check the car and coming back in to check the car, the door opened and closed, and I was like, "Uh uh-oh. And I heard him say to my mom, honey, can you tell me again what happened? You know, so she tells him the story, and then he looks at her, and I hear him say, well, if another car hit your car, it must have come out from under the ground beneath the car to do the damage that is on your car. So the next morning, uh, I wake up, I go downstairs for breakfast, and my dad is cooking, and so I hug him, I say, good morning, and I sit at the kitchen counter, and he looks at me and goes, you want to tell me what happened last night? And thankfully, this time, I told him the truth. And he looked at me, and he said, I need you to know that I'm really angry with you and especially frustrated that you lied. But more importantly, and first and foremost, I'm thankful that you're okay. And I look back on that moment now, and I realize that there was one of so many in which my dad let the gospel lead. That the grace that came over me in that moment was given by him. In a moment when he certainly didn't have to. And and it's those kinds of moments then that we experience in our lives in so many and various ways. And those moments that we see throughout scripture. In fact, that is what Jesus does this morning. Jesus lets the gospel lead. And now when we talk about Jesus, it's really easy for him to do this. It's really easy because that's what he did. He, He brought the gospel to the people. But at the same time, for us, then, it can be really challenging, right? And I think this is where, in the story we heard this morning, we actually relate more to the ruler of the synagogue than we do the woman that Jesus healed. Just for a moment here, let's consider the ruler's perspective. So the people are gathered on the Sabbath day. We're told that it was the Sabbath, and part of the Sabbath was everyone gathering together in the community, the worshiping community, to gather and worship God. Right? And part of this goes back to the third commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Treat it as a day in which you worship. So that's what the people did. And part of that then was also resting on the Sabbath, which meant not doing any work. And work was defined in many and various ways, but particularly by doing things like healing someone. So there you have this whole community together. Everyone knows these laws, these rules. And amongst the people, there is a woman who's been crippled by a disabling spirit for 18 years. And Jesus is there, and he knows these laws. And none of us can imagine, really, what it must have been like for that woman. And, of course, the ruler of the synagogue included. But part of his job, part of his responsibility as a leader, was to uphold God's commands. He was someone who had to uh, be in charge of these things to remind the people of when they were falling short of following God's will, right? And so when Jesus heals this woman in front of the whole community, the ruler's first response is, well, you didn't uphold the command that God gave to us. You are not honoring God because that's what it was for the people. Worshiping God back then, part of remembering the Sabbath was to honor God, to glorify him to treat that day as holy. 
And so from this ruler's perspective, generally speaking, no one is above the law. And here's where it gets complicated. See, because for us, we have the perspective and the knowledge to know that the rulers of the synagogue, many and various everywhere, they were all trying to trap Jesus. So they were all trying to come up with different ways to get him to say, oh, you broke the law, you did it this time. So if we put that aside, though, for just a moment, and you take, again, this reality that for this ruler of the synagogue, today was a day about honoring the Lord, and if you didn't keep the commandment, you were dishonoring God, well, that's where it gets a little challenging, right? Because when we think about God's commandments to us, they are things that we are instructed to follow. Uh, you may hear Pastor Mark and I talk about this from time to time, that in the Lutheran church, we, we call this distinction the law and the gospel. And the law, kind of at its most basic sense, a basic definition of the law, as it comes out of Scripture, is this. The will of God. And God's will is always good, and it's always for our benefit. In fact, St. Paul in Romans chapter 7 talks about how uh, the law is good for us. And it, it reminds us of what God does for us gives order to our lives, it protects and preserves us, it points us towards God. So therefore, when we sin, generally speaking, one of the things we are doing is disregarding the law. We are deliberately going against the will of God. Right? And when we look back in Scripture, if you go to the first time anyone ever sinned, Adam and Eve, we see very clearly their deliberate sin was going against the will of God. God gave them a command not to eat from the tree, and they ate of it. They disobeyed God's will. And then they immediately experienced the result of sin. And at the most basic level, the, the result of sin, the consequence of sin, is separation from God. So Adam and Eve uh, turned uh, their backs on God when they ate from the tree. And then from their one decision to this very day, you and I and all of creation is still suffering because just one person turned their back on God and disobeyed his will. So when we sin, we are still dealing with separation from God. But, but what would have happened if God gave them a free pass? Now, what happened if that moment God said, oh, you know, it happens, don't worry about it? What if the ruler in the synagogue had made an exception, considering what Jesus did? Right, from our perspective, it would have made sense. He just healed this woman. That would have been a reason to give an exception. And at the same time, as many of you know, one exception can lead to another. And if we keep making exceptions, particularly talking about the law of God, his will for us, Eventually, it's not really God's will or commands, it's just kind of like suggestions. And suggestions don't actually protect and preserve us. They don't fulfill their purpose. Um, think about it like this. Treat it like a speed limit sign, so to speak. At least that's how I see it. See, how many of you, whether maybe even on your drive to church today, saw a speed limit sign on your way, looked at your speedometer, and said, Oh, I should drive slower. Not many of us, myself included, right? We see a speed limit sign and most of us think, oh, I'm only going five over. <laughs> That's great. I'm doing great, right? Or you think about it on the highway and you're in the left lane. Well, speed limits are really just suggestions there. It's not until the red and blue lights are flashing behind your vehicle that all of a sudden those numbers on that sign mean something. And it comes very quickly to us then that uh, those numbers are there to protect and preserve us. And even if you disagree with them, doesn't make it right right and that's how it is with God's law 
that, that God has given commands to us and laws for us to follow to protect and order our lives. To keep us from what we would do on our own, which is turn our backs on him. To separate ourselves from him. So if God's law is good for us, if it serves to order our lives, then why does Jesus do what he did? Why does Jesus, from the perspective of uh, this synagogue ruler, break the law? And actually, I think Scripture kind of reveals it in two ways. And so, two answers to this question. The first one is very simple. Because he's Jesus. Right? And here's what I mean by that. If you ever find yourself reading through Scripture, and you're reading about something that Jesus does, and you disagree with it, or you think Jesus is wrong... Go back and read it again, and read it again, and read it again, and read it again, because Jesus is not wrong, right? Generally speaking, we are wrong. Jesus does not sin. And even in this situation where it seems like he did something wrong, and this is where the second answer comes out, that everything that Jesus does is done with a very specific purpose. And this becomes clear to us when we take the fuller context of what Jesus is doing here. See, if you, if you look back in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is preaching in his famous Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus himself says these words. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So when Jesus heals this woman on the Sabbath, he is not disobeying God's command to rest. Rather, he is fulfilling God's will. See, when we look back on the command that God first gave to rest, when he said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, we understand that in connection to what God did when he rested. All right, we look back and it was the seventh day of creation when after everything that God had created, he looked out over all of creation and he saw that it was good. That it was perfect. And so he rested. And he took pleasure in resting as he rejoiced and celebrated all that he had created. But in ancient Jewish culture, when that law was given, when this day of rest was intended to experience God's goodness, which the people were doing when they gathered to worship, it had gotten some things added onto it, as in the people added to the word of God. Right? And when they added to God's word, it started to become uh, even stricter that all of a sudden work became limited to very specific things. And you hear Jesus point this out. Right? Uh, so Jesus calls them out and says, don't you lead your animals to give them water even on the Sabbath? Can't you still care for creation on the Sabbath? So they had taken God's word and changed it. And so what Jesus does is he points us back to what God is really doing, to what God is really saying when he says, remember the Sabbath day and keep, us, keep it holy. Jesus invites us to see that on this day of Sabbath, we have a glimpse of God's perfect creation through a miracle of grace. Jesus invites everyone gathered in that synagogue and me and you to see what it looks like to let the gospel lead. And the gospel, in the simplest terms, is this. The good news that Jesus died on the cross for me and for you and for our salvation. And here in this story, the gospel is shown to us through Jesus healing a woman. And this is not just any woman. 
In, in many stories, we're not given all the details, but here we're given very specific details that Jesus identifies this woman as a daughter of Abraham who'd been dealing with a disabled spirit for 18 years. This woman seemingly had been coming to this synagogue and worshiping for 18 years. This woman had experienced what sin does and just the realities of all the brokenness in the world, and she experienced it in a different way than other people. And on this day, when she is here, Jesus is there. And as a miracle of grace, he heals her. And the first thing she does is stands up and worships God. On the Sabbath, she puts the Sabbath practice into reality. In this moment, Jesus invites this woman and all of us to see what life in him looks like. Because Jesus does what the law could never do. See, the law provides order and, and guides our lives, but it's the gospel that transforms us. And the beauty of the gospel is that over and over and over again, it always brings Jesus back into focus. It, it in fact, brings Jesus' work squarely in front of us. His death on the cross and his glorious resurrection for me and for you, it guides us back to the place well, we're reminded of how the good news transforms us. Because Jesus perfectly fulfills the law. He is the one who can do the things that we cannot do. And as he perfectly keeps the law, he keeps it unto death, even death on a cross. But it's his death that saves us. And that's good news, church. That, that's the best news that we're ever going to hear. Because no matter how many times we hear it, we need to hear it again and again and again. We need to be reminded and assured of this good news. Because sometimes I think we just forget how incredible, how amazing, how much of a miracle it is that Jesus died for me and for you. In the story we heard from Luke's gospel, uh, the miracle of grace's experience, the good news is experienced in the life of this woman as she is healed from her ailment. In the story I told you about uh, when my dad provides and proclaims good news to me, I experienced Jesus' death and resurrection in the grace that my dad showed me that I certainly didn't deserve. And it transforms everything about how I look back on that moment. And I want to let you in even more so on a, on a, on a week-to-week kind of little secret that we have here at St. Andrew. That between Pastor Mark and I, every single week, whether you realize it or not, because sometimes we're better at it than others, we are reminding you of this good news. If there's one reason that you come here, that you gather in this place, besides the donuts, it's to hear that good news over and over and over again. To hear that Jesus died for me and for you, that he rose from the dead, and all of this was an act of of love. He did this because he loves you. And that excites me. That everyone asks, why are you so excited when you're here on Sunday morning? Because I get to tell you that every single week, and I get to hear it from you every single week, that Jesus loves me, that he died for me, that he rose for me, and that that changes my life. And we get to celebrate that. See, as Christians, every week we get to gather in this place or wherever you are to celebrate this good news. And what Scripture does then, it invites us uh, to live in a tension. 
to live in this reality that on the one hand we have God's law. His will for our lives that, that guides, protects, and orders our lives. And it's a law that we fail to keep. And on the other hand, we have God's grace given to us as a gift over and over and over again. The gospel proclaimed in so many ways. And the good news of the gospel is that it never runs out. That Jesus' death and his resurrection will always be enough. And the best part about this news is that there's nothing you can do to change it. You can't do anything that will stop Jesus from loving you. You can't do anything that will keep Jesus from dying for you because he already did it. It was once and for all and he rose again so that you would be transformed, that you would experience this good news. This grace, this good news that we hear, that we see, that we live, allows us in every way to let the gospel lead. And so as followers of Jesus, that's how we're called to live with one another. With the people that we agree with, with the people that we don't agree with. To come back, to, to see the gospel squarely in front of us. To be reminded of what Jesus does for us and for all people. So that with everyone you come in contact with, you'll be reminded and you will get to share the assurance that Jesus loves you. And when you do that, you'll follow Jesus' lead. You will let the gospel lead all your interactions. And when you do, you will begin to see the miracles of grace happening all around you in Jesus. Amen? Amen.